Have you been encouraged through this series, five proverbs, five topics? Uh, Occasionally surprised at what comes out on a particular topic from different proverbs? I hope there's been some surprises because we should keep being surprised by the Word of God and some encouragement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, continue to give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means and the will to put it into practice for Christ, your Son, our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, at our recent Leaders Training Day, we looked at leadership qualities. What would go on your list? Forbes magazine listed eight Uh, Sincere enthusiasm, integrity, great communication skills, loyalty, decisiveness, managerial competence, empowerment and charisma. A bit daunting for some. But Paul's list for church leaders began with being above reproach. You can see that both in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the Americans call it being unimpeachable. There's a heavy emphasis on character over skills in the Bible. New York Times columnist David Brooks speaks of eulogy virtues over resume virtues. What will they say in your funeral rather than your CV? I like that way of putting it. Such lists give us something of the who of leadership but they don't really tell us what leadership is, what is its basic nature or goal, and beyond the importance of character, the lists themselves don't say that much about how to do it. Proverbs offers a bit of help on those questions, the what and how of leadership. In many ways, the entire book has been a leadership manual. Its obvious setting is the royal court. From the start, it's Solomon king of Israel advising his son. Proverbs 25 and verse 1 says, the further Proverbs of Solomon were compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and the last chapter 31 are the sayings of King Lemuel. And all through there are many references peppered to kings and princes and nobles and rulers. It's like a training manual for those with leadership duties in a royal court. Translated to our setting, it's about what we might call secular, political and civil and business leadership. And though Proverbs doesn't really go into religious leadership, it certainly commends fear of the Lord and care for his law. As a young Christian minister, so much have I appreciated the... uh, Not young anymore, I know that but the advice of Bishop Ray Smith when I was young, uh, who suggested reading Proverbs monthly, a chapter a day. I'm not quite up to that frequency, but beside my other Bible reading, I alternate between Psalms and Proverbs every day. And that means I still get to go through Proverbs about twice a year. If you want to be a leader, or even a good team member, wherever you are, I urge you to re-read Proverbs again. And again, and take special notice of what it says to leaders. And even when a verse doesn't mention kings or princes, think about how it would apply to a leader. Here are five proverbs I've selected on the topic. 
and the first defines a king's basic job. Look at Proverbs 16 and verse 12. Kings detest wrongdoing for a throne is established through righteousness. The Bible does not give a detailed political theory but this sums it up in a nutshell. A king, a governor's basic job is to encourage righteousness and justice and therefore to punish evil. This basic job of government is repeated in the New Testament. Romans 13 famously, verse 4 for example, says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, of course, the Bible many times condemns unjust governments. It warns that corrupt leaders will be held accountable by God. It's noteworthy in the verse just before here, Proverbs 16.11, says that honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. It's not up to leaders to define for himself what is good or bad. No, the scales of justice are fixed by God. His standards are consistent. And other Proverbs spell this out with particular application, uh, like 29 uh, verse 4, for example. Uh, By justice a king gives a country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. A political stability is good for a society. It tends to go with uh, economic, uh, economic prosperity, social cohesion, whereas corruption undermines it. At 29.14, uh, it says justice must apply equally well to all, including the marginalised. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. Note that idea there repeated from chapter, 12, uh, chapter 16 of the king's throne being established forever. 1 Kings 10 says Solomon had a grand golden throne. It was placed on a platform of six steps. Egyptologists notice that the pharaohs also built their thrones on six steps. The archaeology shows it. And the hieroglyph used on the base step of that throne, the foundation, was the sign, the symbol, the hieroglyphic for justice. It's common to human conscience everywhere that justice must be the foundation for any leadership. But of course, Old Testament kings like Solomon failed the test of justice, righteousness. They did not sit on their thrones forever because of it. Egyptian kings likewise and modern democratic prime ministers fall short too in the justice and righteousness stakes as we show when we vote them out. But there is one king seated on the throne forever. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that after he had provided purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Indeed, Hebrews 1 verse 8, the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 45 to Jesus, quote, but about the son, he says, 
Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Our King Jesus says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's a big part of justice. In fact, of how we love our neighbour. We need to be fair and consistent with each other. To think about what it looks like from their viewpoint. This applies when we discuss freedom of religion or anti-discrimination. It's not just a freedom for us believers. It must apply consistently to all. Likewise in our HR, human resources, be fair to all employees. And of course there should be a special care in seeing justice provided to the poor, those who are easily overlooked in our society, in our circles and of course this will vary from context to context but the consistent, impartial application of law matters. So the promotion of justice and righteousness is the basic what of leadership. My second proverb continues immediately on in chapter 16 and it gives an insight into how a leader might do his job. I've summarised it under this head, a leader values honest advisers. Look at 16 verse 13. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value the one who speaks what is right. Don't distort reality, but face it. Proverbs 11 verse 14 underlines it. For lack of guidance a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisers. Public service, uh, company service is built on honest assessment of facts, not populism. Years ago at a staff retreat for our night off, we watched World War Z starring Brad Pitt. It was my very first zombie movie and my last. (laughs) Well, so far, it provided surprisingly rich uh, leadership lessons that you'd normally pay big bucks for from Harvard Business Review. And the first lesson we distilled was always have a tenth man on your team. In the movie, this was the secret of Israel's defensibility the modern nation, Uh, they allegedly had the principle of assigning the last man out of any team of ten to always argue the minority case in deciding strategy or assessing threat. In that movie, when everyone else said it was the Palestinians or some other traditional enemy invading, the tenth man warned, it was zombies attacking. And so at least they got some preparation in. Well... Uh, The serious point is to be willing to listen even to minority advice. The best advice is honest advice. Advice that can demonstrate its connection to the truth by evidence it offers, the data it supplies, the reasoning it demonstrates. But you know sometimes even advice from a gut feel or left field is at least worth considering. A little later, Proverbs 16 contains the world-famous advice that pride goes before a fall. Well, actually, you would have heard from 1619, that's a contraction, but true. 
A good leader is never too proud to listen to advice, even if it contradicts what that leader thinks or likes or does or contradicts what is popular with others. Leaders want people in their lives who speak the truth. Hopefully those others will also speak that truth in love. One of the ways I repeatedly try and encourage this in myself and our staff team is to always ask if there's a kernel of truth in criticism, even when you find it harsh. Maybe you'll blow a lot of chaff away, I say, but is there a grain of truth in there? Does the feedback at least help you understand how it's looking or feeling to others? Thanking people for the feedback, even hard feedback, and pausing observably to consider it before moving on. That communicates to others that you value honest lips. Chapter 27 verse 6 says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. A leader should know someone saying what you want to hear does it just to get what they want or to keep the peace or to avoid conflict but if I really love you I will risk conflict and share honest advice even if it is hard. And that leads on to a flip side proverb on leadership, how to influence a leader. For that we turn to our third proverb, chapter 25 and verse 15. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Now the word for ruler here often referred to a military chief, an army commander. In, such a word, in other words, to tough, no-nonsense men. And you'd think the way to win over such men was by a show of strength, uh, by force of personality. But no, God's word says the best results come by gentle patience. Now that is an amazing, dramatic image. You know, uh, you can smash a bone with a hammer... Now I'm imagining, uh, do you know that famous story, it became a movie, Aaron Ralston, the, uh, you know, the rock climber guy who described in his book titled Between a Rock and a Hard Place, uh, trapped by a boulder and after a day or two no one had come by, this was an isolated area, he took out his pocket knife and sawed through his bone to avoid the slow death pinned to the boulder and here a gentle tongue does the job. That's how powerful it can be. If you know something is right, stick at it. Politely persist at persuading others. Keep on making your case as long as you reasonably can. Sometimes there is a time to be silent fools won't listen to rebukes or advice says proverbs but don't you give in to anger or frustration proverbs 15 1 famously says a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger your advice gets ignored sometimes well don't grump about it if you respond with gentleness and humility you might get a second chance or a third to offer your advice to swallow your pride and stick at it and trust that the merit of your wisdom might eventually show through. This really is more power of the tongue from last week. 
And it's worth seeing here that an ability to persuade a leader over time is built not just on persistence but also, I believe, on a track record. Because look at the two previous Proverbs in 25, Proverbs 25, 13 and 14. Like a snow-cooled drink at harvest time is a trustworthy messenger to the one who sends him. He refreshes the spirit of his master like clouds and wind without rain is the one who boasts of gifts never given. Have you already proved reliable with the jobs entrusted to you? Then your team leader is more likely to listen. On the other hand, verse 14, if you boast about what you bring to the table, the gifts you offer, but you struggle to follow through, well, your ideas are likely to be treated as all talk, no substance. Like clouds without rain, so frustrating to those farmers. There is merit in our proverb that it's better to under-promise and over-deliver than the other way around. It's in that context of reliability that patient perseverance is most respected. Well, a bit of a gear change here, but our fourth leadership proverb concerns alcohol. Chapter 31 and verse 4. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer. Now, remember that Proverbs are mainly generalisations about how life best works. They are wise rules of thumb not legal commands. So be clear up front, this is not a blanket ban on alcohol for all leaders. Psalm 104 verse 15 really did say that our good creator made, quote, wine that gladdens human hearts. That was no mistake. But other proverbs warn people about alcohol in general. Chapter 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, and beer a brawler, whoever is led astray by them is not wise. alcohol fueled violence is the biggest cause of assault. A recent Australian study says alcohol causes the most overall harm to the community of any drug worse than ice and heroin. Proverbs 21.17 also generalises that whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit... The other day, uh, while I was waiting for the rest of my family to turn up somewhere, uh, I waited in a little bar and I paid $11 for a single glass of beer. What a waste. Craft beer is overpriced. It made a $5 latte itself overpriced look like good value. Proverbs 23 warns against drunkenness and says lingering over wine or mixing different drinks can end with strife and complaints needless bruises and bloodshot eyes, even addiction. And if you find yourself saying, I need a drink, you could be in some danger. But my proverb in chapter 31 says leaders have a higher responsibility and need extra caution because they have the welfare of others in their hands too. 
See how 31 verse 5 goes on? Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. The effect of alcohol can make a person sit loose to their job, responsibilities, to cutting corners, to compromise, to a slackness or slide from God's will. Bob Hawke, just buried, had been a notorious user, indeed abuser of alcohol as a trade union leader, but you know he committed to stopping entirely when he aimed to become Prime Minister and stuck it out, remained dry that whole time and was admired for his performance in the job. Now, after retirement, he returned to drinking, fair enough. Though I am sad, he celebrated sculling beers in public, potentially encouraging binge drinking in his old age. Older gospel ministers like the Jensen brothers and Reg Piper publicly expressed concern at the free and easy approach many younger evangelical leaders take with grog. Yes, they join in fighting against the legalism of banning all alcohol, going beyond what is written. But they are surprised that younger leaders do not take King Lemuel's warning more seriously. Some Christians, including leaders, seem to frequently tuck away multiple drinks in a session. I myself am not a teetotaler, but I am astonished by how often Christian leaders post selfies featuring their latest alcoholic drink. And I am nervous about how some churches put on evangelistic events with beer or wine. By definition, at such an event, you hope there will be lots of guests there. But how can you know the background, what background your guests have with grog? Most leaders, to be frank, don't even know which of their church members have problems. What about the example we set? The youngsters watching or those who struggle with sobriety or dependence. When Al Stewart became Bishop of Wollongong, he decided to cut out drinking all alcohol because it just avoided any danger from that source where a slip or a compromise could damage so many. And it struck me as a good application of Lemuel's advice. Well, my last proverb on leadership comes under a strange heading. If you've been following the notes, you'll probably agree. I'm referring to the Lord's irrigation system. What is that? Well, I got it from Proverbs 21 and verse 1. In the Lord's hand... The king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. The old NIV said he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. This is a reminder to all leaders that even the most powerful person in ancient Israel, the king, was totally subservient to the will of God whether he realised it or not. In the Old Testament, as in life in general, water brings agricultural fertility. So the idea here may especially be that God 
inclines the hearts of leaders in good directions to bring the water where it's needed. An irrigation canal rather than the chaos of a flood, for example. God rules for the benefit of those he wishes to bless. We could say, one commentator said, the king is putty in the hands of God. It's true of all leaders, all people, all through the Bible. God used kings to achieve his purpose. Remember, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, which he himself had already hardened, but this leads to the dramatic defeat of Pharaoh's proud army while God's people exited in that exodus from the promised, uh, to the promised land. Once again here we see the importance of the heart. See how chapter 21 goes on? A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unploughed field of the wicked produce sin. I ask are any of us without such sin? And therefore, all of us need the sacrifice. It would be better not to sin, but none of us has ever consistently done what is right and just. It's not just kings and leaders who have this problem uh, because they too uh, just arise from our humanity. They are sinful like us. We've failed to be fair, to be scrupulously honest. We've been proud. We've failed to listen. Uh, We've failed to give advice when we knew it would be unpopular. We've given up too quickly. We've let others down. We've been careless with grog, some of us. We've all compromised God's standards. Well, here we conclude not just this talk but the whole series with the wisdom of the cross. The leaders of Israel and Rome thought they were in control there too, disposing of a problem. But God had better plans. Acts 2 verses 23 and 4 says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him. Therefore, Acts 2 verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They thought, those kings, those rulers, those governors, those soldiers, those high priests of Israel, that they were doing one thing and the Lord was doing quite another. A chapter later in Acts, this wiping out of sins, this forgiveness is called a time of refreshing Through the cross, friends, God overrules terrible, sinful leaders and people and channels great spiritual blessings wherever he wishes, but thankfully right into our hearts. Turn to him and believe and pray that God would be ever 
turning your heart towards him, that he would lead you, that Jesus would be your leader.